you. This is Cruise Radio Rewind. Real reviews from real cruisers. I hope you're hanging in there and taking care of yourself. My name is Doug Parker. This is Cruise Radio Rewind. Maritime historian and journalist Peter Canego drops in today. When it comes to the cruise industry, Peter is probably one of the most passionate, diverse, and knowledgeable people I've ever come across. In fact, so, so what Peter does is he goes over to Alang, India. That's where the graveyard is for the cruise ships. If you've ever seen the videos where the cruise ships go up on a beach full speed ahead and kind of rest for the last time, that's where Peter goes. And he also documents his journey along the way. In fact, he has two documentaries. One's called On the Road to Alang, and the other is The Sands of Alang. And I've watched both of them, and they're really good. So we're going to talk to him about the documentary, what it's like actually going over there and, you know, being one of the last people on a cruise ship before it gets broken up and just what the atmosphere is like. Basically, this is going to be kind of an unscripted conversation. I'm going to just uh, I'm taking full advantage of this hour I have with Peter. So we'll have him in just a couple of moments here. Cruise Radio News. I know there's a lot happening out there. And if you want to stay abreast 24-7, Hook up with our Cruise Radio News feed. It's opposite of this, so just type in Cruise Radio News where you listen to your favorite podcast, and you'll come across it there. Doing it seven days a week right now. All right, jumping right to maritime historian and journalist Peter Canego. How you doing, buddy? I am doing really, really well. Sequestered here and uh, going through old video clips that I've shot over the past 20 years and filing them and you know doing stuff that I've been wanting to do for a long time that I haven't been able to because I've been flying around the world and going on ships. Yeah, a few years ago, we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, but you had a documentary, speaking of going on ships and flying around the world, called The Sands of Alang, and Alang, India is where the cruise ships go. It's basically their graveyard. So we're going to talk all about that in just a little bit. I have so many questions to ask you, Peter, because uh, <laughs> anytime I, I just cherish the time I get with you because um, you're a big inspiration to me. So I want to ask you first off, oh. because your house is pretty pretty much a classic ocean liner. What was the thought process behind thinking, I'm going to turn my house into a cruise ship? It goes way back. I mean, my my wanting to own things from ships is, you know, ever since I was a kid, any piece of a ship, if I would go visit a ship, I loved to collect ashtrays or whatever. And I just cherished having something that was an actual physical object that came from these beautiful old cruise ships and ocean liners that I experienced. And When the ships themselves started going for scrap and when I was at an age where I could actually do something about it, travel to India and and try to purchase things, um, in 2003, there were about eight or nine ships all at once, all being broken up there. And I thought, this is my chance. I'm going to go rescue some of this stuff. And I I wasn't even sure what I was going to do with it. But I filled a container full of things that I thought were precious, you know, bells and builder's plates, artworks, paneling, chairs, whatever I could get from these these ships that were there. And when they came through, I started cleaning them up and realized that they were much nicer and more beautiful than any furniture that I could go out and buy. So I cleaned them up and gradually started filling my house with bits and pieces of these various ships that I love so much. So not only did they give me joy just having sort of a physical contact with these objects that I was so fond of, they were beautiful. They were far more stylish than anything I could go out and buy and far better quality, you know, solid mahogany yeah. chair frames and sycamore and maple. I mean, real wood and real old world craftsmanship. So 
as I collected more and more things, I sort of figured out, okay, well, that couch of mine can go and I'll replace it with, you know, a love seat from the love boat. And I'll put a couple more chairs there and cocktail tables and artworks. Um, you know, whatever wall space I had would be filled with artworks. And I even replaced the stair railings in my house with stair railings from an old ship. And wow. it just became sort of a step-by-step process where I turned my entire house into remnants of these old ships. I was buying so much of the stuff that I created a business on the side where I could actually sell these things to designers and fellow collectors. And it really just gave me joy knowing that these things weren't just going to disappear from the face of the earth or be destroyed. They would actually live on and be appreciated by other people in addition to me. Yeah, that had to be so surreal, like standing on the shores of Alang, India, and looking out at what was the love boat that we all watched. Yeah. Well, that was really bizarre. Well, for at that time, when I went for the Island Princess, you know, I, I also went for the Pacific, which mm-hmm. is the ship that got all the credit. Yeah. I went to Aliyah in Turkey where, where she was being broken up, but that ship was, um, she was almost capsizing, so I couldn't go aboard and nothing got rescued from the ship. And then the Turkish traders were all crooked anyway, and I was advised, don't even try to buy things because you'll give them the money and the money will disappear and you won't have anybody to protect you. So in India, I at least had somebody that I could trust. Uh, But at the time I went for that ship, the Island Princess, the twin sister ship, which was filmed just as much. Mm -hmm. uh, They shot the love boat on that ship just as much as they did the Pacific. It was basically whichever one of the two ships was in Los Angeles or nearby where they could get the casting crew of the show on board and, and shoot. So anyway, the Island Princess, there there had been some crazy things going on in India. There had been a terrorist attack um, at the big hotel in Bombay, and there was all sorts of security. So Westerners were really looked at with a great deal of suspicion at that point in time. And I, I remember going out on the, the sort of pontoon craft, and I was told, keep my cameras low, don't shoot the ship until we get far enough away from shore where the authorities won't see you, you know? So meanwhile, I'm holding my phone and I'm trying to shoot because I have all the workers behind me in this Mm -hmm. thing. And it was just such a fascinating experience. I'm going out with these basically barefoot workers, you know, these kids, they're teenagers and early twenties, and they're going to do their work because for them making that $2 a day was a fortune. They could send half of it home to their villages and Mm -hmm. keep the other half and, and live on it while they were in a lang. So that was quite an adventure. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys have no idea that this particular cruise ship is world famous, that, you know, all these movie stars and all these, you know, people were watching in their living rooms by the millions as this particular ship was being broadcast, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. And here I am climbing aboard it with the local workers in India you know, trying to rescue things while these guys are just going to do their daily work, which sadly consisted of, you know, prying the teak decks up and tearing up the walls and getting all the light fixtures off. And it's just, it was, it was insane. And as has every trip I've made to India, it's been absolutely, it's almost spiritual. It's so crazy because you really are, you know, experiencing something that very few people in the world could possibly imagine is going on where they where they break up these ships. It's it's such a crazy process. 
What's it like being on board an empty ship? Like, I mean, you're you're jumping in a skiff, you're going out to the ship. I mean, do the cruise lines leave everything on the ship, like the artwork, the furniture, the crockery, and all that, once you board? Like, do you see all of that stuff, or do they pretty much strip the ship and it's a shell? It depends. Some of the cruise lines don't care, or or the you know back in the day, like if the ship's a really old ex ocean liner, it was sold by that the first company that commissioned all those beautiful artworks and that great furniture and those top notch designers sold to somebody else who didn't care about any of that stuff. They bought the ship because it was the right size or Mm -hmm. it was in good enough shape where it could carry on in sort of a a second rate service, you know, cruising the Mediterranean on a budget or whatever. And then they would sell it to somebody else. And, you know, by the time the ships ended up being scrapped, the owners of the ship at the time of its being sold for scrap had no idea what was on board. Um, So, in, in the case of like one ship, there was a ship called the Ausonia, um, and its last owners were Lewis Cruise Lines, which is now Celestial Cruises. And they sold it for scrap. It was still in good shape, but it just wouldn't pass the new uh, 2010 uh, Safety of Life at Sea standards. So they sold the ship, and it's got these artworks that were commissioned in the late 50s by Maioli, this guy who restored the cathedrals in Ravenna after World War II, and Luzzati, who was this Picasso-type artist that was so relished in, in Italy. They have a museum dedicated to his works in Genoa. And these artworks were there, and, and Lewis, you know, they, I mean, they're running budget cruises out of Cyprus, so they really weren't that concerned with what the artworks were. But me, I was like, oh, my God, you know, right. when the Alsonia went for scrap, I, I, I had to go to India and make sure I rescued these things from the ship. They were still on board. So I'm standing there and my, my guy who's leading me through the process, um, he gets me on the ships and he makes he negotiates for me because I don't speak Hindi uh, with the shipbreakers. And he's like, don't look so excited. Don't you know, just calm down, you know, point out a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when I go make the deal for you, I'll make you a deal for the things that you want, but don't only want certain things. Cause then they'll think it's really valuable and then they'll charge you way too much. <laughs> you know, so I'm trying to play this game of like, all right, but I really want that Kaushal. Don't let this thing get lost. It's too important. It's really a brilliant artwork. And when I'm no longer on this earth, I want to make sure it ends up in the right museum or a place where people can appreciate it. So it's just really bizarre because I'm, I'm going on these ships and, you know, for the ship breakers, all of the stuff that's actually on the ship, it's, it's surplus. You know, they want the steel. That's what they make the money off of. So they sell a deck by deck. They'll sell one deck full of things to one local trader and another deck to the other trader. So if I want this artwork and it's on B deck, I got to go to this trader to negotiate. If it's on A deck, I got to go to a different um, trader to negotiate for it. So it gets to be this really crazy, tricky process. And sometimes things get lost. Uh, but fortunately, my guy there, I call him my my Indian brother, Kaushal. He's mm-hmm. led me through this process now nine times that I've gone to India. And he looks after me and makes sure I'm safe and I don't get arrested by the authorities. And, and he does his best to make sure that I, you know, I get all the things that I'm rescuing because he realizes you know, how much history there is there. And, mm-hmm. and he loves being a part of this. He just thinks it's very special. But it is such a surreal process, being there and watching this beautiful creation being torn to shreds before my eyes. It's it, it's heartbreaking. 
But then I have the consolation of knowing, A, I got to go say goodbye to this beautiful old ship. I was the last Westerner who appreciated what it was. So I sort of walked through and I, I don't know, it's, it, it's just a spiritual process. And then at the same time, I'm rescuing these things so that they don't just disappear in some local restaurant in some Indian village or get burned for the, you know, the, the firewood or whatever mm-hmm. they, it lives on. So that makes me somewhat happy. It's, it's a consolation for the fact that all these beautiful ships are, are gone or almost all gone now. Have you ever sailed on a ship that you later stood on at the graveyard in Alang? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> almost, That's gotta be like a crazy feeling uh, there. Oh yeah, you know, and I'll be walking down the promenade deck, and the the workers are are tearing up the wood, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my god, this is the first ship I ever went to Corfu on, uh, or the Discovery, the Island Princess. Um, that ship I went to the Black Sea. I went to Antarctica on that ship. My my first and only trip to Antarctica was on that ship. So yeah, there's tons of memories. And then you know, one of the first ships I visited when I was a kid, and way back in 1974, was the Island Princess which that same ship, that same ship. And I remember going on the very first time it was a Valentine's day, 1974. My mom drove me down. I couldn't drive and, you know, walking around the ship. This is even before the love boat TV series started thinking, wow, this is such a new cool ship. It's so modern and, and so futuristic and space age, you know, and then there I am 30 years later, you know, walking its decks while it's being torn apart. It's very, very strange feeling. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, how about Carnival's Mardi Gras? Were you over there when it was being torn up? Uh, yes. And that was such a beautiful ship. You know, one thing, whatever you read about early Carnival, when they talk about the Mardi Gras and the Carnival and the Festival and the, even Farkas, you know, I have tremendous respect for. He's always mm-hmm. dogging those ships saying they were worn out old ocean liners. They were magnificent. They were absolutely beautifully designed. They were solidly built. They were filled with gorgeous woodwork, etched glass panels. They were magnificent ships that were just, unfortunately, when the airplane came along, they were immediately outmoded. And fortunately, they were available so the Carnival could buy them and turn them into cruise ships. But of course, the Carnival passenger was not interested in going on a classic ocean liner. So they wanted to spruce the ships up and make them look like party boats. So they put you know, purple wallpaper on top of gorgeous mahogany wood paneling, you know, and mm-hmm. they did everything they could to try to make the ships look new. But at the, at the same time, they were sort of degrading the ships from what they originally were, which were these classic, beautiful creations. Um, so you hear these stories about the old ships from Carnival, but they were, A, Carnival did a great job maintaining them. They were always spotless. And the Mardi Gras in particular had the most gorgeous woodwork. I mean, she must have had like 20 or 30 different types of wood. You walk through those passageways and it was like Zebrano and um, Macquarie and Mahogany and just, I mean, you couldn't believe that they would actually make ships out of these materials. So she was wonderful. And that was the very first time I went to Alang and I went on her when they were tearing her apart. Uh, and that was very sad. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to rescue a lot of things from that ship. And unfortunately, I, I came back and I tried to convince Carnival that, you know, I had these beautiful artifacts from their very first ship, actually, and their second and third ship. Eventually, all three of those ships went for scrap, the Carnival and Festival also. Uh, and they weren't interested at the time, which was which was very frustrating. But I still hold my hopes since the new 
carnival ship is going to be called Mardi Gras. And I will bet you anything that the next ship that follows the Mardi Gras, the LNG-powered ship that they're building now in, in Finland, um, will be the Carnival. And I hope the third, if there will be a third, if the world economy permits, it'll be the Festival. If they do do that, they might have enough interest amongst their passengers. I, I, I think their passengers are interested, mm-hmm. but I think the executives at the company will turn around and say, hey, you know, maybe some of those things would, would, would find a good home here. So I keep hoping. I give Carnival a lot of props because they took these old ocean liners and they turned them into great cruise ships and they ended up developing into the biggest company the world had ever seen as far as uh, cruise ships and passenger ships were concerned. So, did, Speaking of Joe Farkas, did you read his book, Design on the High Seas? Yes, yeah. I did. When he launched the book, he came on the show, it was like about a year ago probably, he was talking about when Arison bought Mardi Gras and they brought it to Port Miami and they brought a mm-hmm. bunch of carpenters on board. And all I could think about was them totally ripping out all of this history and just carnivalizing it. But, you know, he was doing a job, but it was just like from someone who loves cruise ships like myself, it's like, wow, you're really tearing out the soul of this ship. Well, I'll say this. The first two ships, the Carnival and Mardi Gras, Mm -hmm. he didn't do that much. Fortunately, they didn't have a a huge budget. Uh, the Mardi Gras, the Empress of Canada, they tore out the first class dining room after the first year and they turned that into cabins because they only needed one dining room when mm-hmm. the ship was in cruise service. And they added a bunch of cabins um, in different places where there were cargo holds and stuff. So they didn't do that much to the Mardi Gras. She was pretty much left as as was. It was things like the carpets, the curtains, and then covering up some of the woodwork with wallpaper. That's kind of all they did to the Mardi Gras. So she came out of it pretty unscathed and she was sold to the Greeks and the Greeks took good care of her. And then when she went for scrap, most of her original stuff was still on board. So I did really well with that ship and rescuing things. Carnival, the second ship, the ex-Empress of Britain, they had also managed to not mess up too much. I had a friend who was a purser on board Carnival in her early years and he told me these horror stories of how they put this velvet wallpaper over all this gorgeous marquetry panel in the main lounge. And they, you know, the carpets were kind of tacky and over designed, too many colors and, you know, patterns all, all over the place. But otherwise, the carnival was left unscathed until the late 80s. And then for some reason, Carnival decided, okay, we're going to spend a ton of money. And they went in and they tore that ship apart. And they covered up so much beautiful woodwork in the passageways. And they put the, the, the decor look like when you go to the gym, like in a Bally's gym, you know, and you look at that wallpaper mm-hmm. and, and, and the carpeting stuff that's on the walls, it's striped and zigzag and all that. They did that to the Carnival. And that was very upsetting. But there were so many good solid parts of that ship that it would have cost them too much money to tear apart. It was buried under layers of this new stuff that Farkas put on. And eventually when the Greeks took that ship over, they stripped all of the Farkas stuff out and restored the ship as much as they could. And she still had a lot of gorgeous woodwork. Yeah. It wasn't until the Festival, which was their third ship, the old Transvaal Castle S.A. Val, um, that was completely rebuilt by Carnival in Japan. Carnival actually made her look better on the outside because they added more superstructure to her because she was a passenger cargo liner. So they used all the freight 
space and then they expanded her superstructure. She looked really gorgeous on the outside. On the inside, they did a number on that ship and she had more neon and sort of glitzy tacky stuff and all that Tivoli lighting and stuff that Farkas was so fond of. But to his credit, he turned that ship from an old ocean liner into the most snazzy cruise ship. She was the most modern glitzy thing afloat for for a few years. And she was even the largest cruise ship in the world, pure cruise ship, uh, until the SS Norway came into service in, in 1980. So I give them props because even though I don't necessarily think that everything was in great taste with the festival, that ship was a great cruise ship with a big showroom and all the things that that you needed to embark on the new era of cruising with big shows and and lots of different activities. The ship was loaded with it. So I give props for that, but it did sort of break my heart at the time when I first stepped on board and I was looking for remnants of the old Transvaal Castle. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, it's all neon. Uh, but that ship got the big treatment there. And that's when Carnival was starting to make the money. And after that, they started building the new ships. Yeah, full-on Kathy Lee Gifford and... All of exactly. that, right? Yep. What's some of the coolest things you've ever found on board? I mean, you were mentioned like a bell earlier or like anything really stick out from when you were on Mardi Gras or any of the other liners. Didn't you do um I thought I saw it in one of the one of your videos. Was it a premier ship, Big Red Boat? There was the second premier ship. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, premier had two phases. There was the first premier cruises, which started with the Oceanic and they had another ship called the Majestic and they mm-hmm. got rid of that. And then after Premier um, got absorbed into a bigger uh, consortium, they started buying other big ocean liners like the the Oceanic, which they nicknamed the Big Red Boat. They bought the Eugenio C, which was a sister ship in ways to the Oceanic. Very similar, but it was built for Costa Lines as the uh, Eugenio C, Eugenio Costa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they called that the Big Red Boat, too. And then they bought the Festival from Carnival, and that became the Big Red Boat 3. And then they bought the Rotterdam, which was called the Rembrandt. They were going to call it the Big Red Boat 4, and thank God they never did that because they would have ruined that ship, and she's now safely preserved in Rotterdam as the Rotterdam, and she looks gorgeous. If you've ever, if you ever want to see a perfect 1950s ocean liner, that is the ship to see, and you can spend the night on board, and she's sort of like the Queen Mary, but in a way, they've done a better job with her preserving her than the Queen Mary. Yeah, we stayed on Queen Mary a few months ago. It wasn't that impressive. Queen Mary, yeah, there's remnants of the Queen Mary, which are magnificent. The mm-hmm. dining, first-class dining room in the Queen Mary and some of the first-class spaces are great. But they tore apart the second class. They rebuilt, they built these awful um, staterooms out of second- and third-class cabins, which are just, they're worse than the most ugly motel you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But if you get an original suite or an original first-class cabin on the Queen Mary, it's phenomenal. So the Queen Mary is sort of a hodgepodge, and they did a lot of stuff they shouldn't have done to her. Um, unfortunately, it's too late to take all of that back. And I think that Rotterdam, when they brought her to Rotterdam, they learned what not to do with the Queen Mary. For instance, yeah. the Rotterdam's engine room is still intact. So if you want to do an engine room tour, you can see what an old steam engine room was like, whereas the Queen Mary just has one boiler room mm-hmm. and one little area left of the engine room that you can see. And it's very disappointing for people who appreciate the engineering of a ship. They compromise the Queen Mary's structure uh, by gouging out 
huge swaths of, of spaces uh, that were in their boiler rooms and they didn't reinforce it. So sadly now the Queen Mary can't be moved into a dry dock, which she desperately needs, mm-hmm. without massive amounts of rebuilding to uh, reinforce her structure. Otherwise, she could just break in half and sink. So it's it's unfortunate what they've done to the Mary, and I think the Rotterdam, they, they learned those lessons. But back to what you were saying about uh, Big Red Boat. Big Red Boat 2 is the star of my second video, The Sands of Elaine, which had incredible artworks on board. Uh, Luzzati, Paolucci, all these great Italian artists. For some reason, Costa didn't remove these artworks when they sold the ship onwards to the next buyers. And so those went with the ship to India. And that got a little dicey because the Costa family knew that the stuff was still on board. And this is after they had sold Costa to Carnival. But they knew that this one particular ship had some of the original artworks. So I ended up getting into a bidding war with one of the Costa family members. And of course, I don't have that kind of budget. (laughs) So I was like, oh my God. So I went to them and I said, look, I've done this before. I've navigated through these seas of dealing with these people in India. If you let me purchase everything, I will split everything with you. And that way we don't get into a bidding war and the shipbreaker makes a fortune. And then you get half of the stuff and I'll take half of the stuff. You guys keep it for the family. I will keep what I can for my collection and I'll sell whatever I can to make my money back. And they were very good about that. They, they were fine. So we, we divvied everything up properly and got all the artworks off. I got all the builder's plans from the ship, the original uh, Monfalcone the shipyard plans, which are gorgeous. They're like works of art themselves. Got the builder's plate. The bell was long gone. I don't know what happened to the bell, but I got some of the navigation equipment, a lot of beautiful Italian furniture from the mid-1960s, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that was that was sort of a passion project. But it's hard for me to say what my favorite thing I got is, because I love it all. Uh, you know, certain chairs... Um, Art panels, they're gorgeous. And most of the stuff that came from the Italian ships, I'd say, is my favorite. But there were so many Italian-designed ships that were going for scrap over the past 15 years. They're now all gone. Um, it would be hard to say one in particular was my my chosen favorite over another. I, I you know, Fortunately, I have a big house, so I can walk from room to room depending on what mood I'm in if I... <laughs> If I want to see German artwork or English artwork or wood paneling, you know, I go to one room and, <laughs> and and so on and so forth. You mentioned selling and getting your money back. How do you get all of this stuff 8,000 miles back to California? Because you can't just bring this stuff on a plane, can you? No, <laughs> no. Well, I suppose you could charter a plane and, True. you know, but no, I don't. I don't have that kind of budget. Um the my guy Kaushal has has people that he hires local laborers they remove the stuff from the ship and they wrap them immediately and they get a container a 40 foot long container and they fill it with all the things that i purchase and as soon as they've got the container full uh it immediately gets you know, hooked up to a truck and taken to Bombay where it's loaded onto a container ship and usually disembarked somewhere like Singapore and picked up by another ship and then brought to the West Coast. Uh, It goes through a clearance process with customs. They need a bill of lading with, with everything that's in that container listed, 
what I paid for it listed. And then they go open the door. Sometimes they don't open the door. Sometimes they do. And if it looks too weird and for a lot of these guys, it is weird because I'm not buying antiquities. I'm not buying brand new stuff. I'm buying 40 year old furniture Mm -hmm. and, and wood paneling that looks terrible because it's been covered in dust and dirt and grime over the years. And they go, okay, what is this guy up to? So every now and then they'll pull everything out of the container and they charge me for it. (laughs) And then they put it back hopefully without breaking things. And then if they don't find anything suspicious, which they never have, thankfully, um, they seal it back up and then the containers released and then it gets driven to my house where I hire local workers and my dear friends come over, you know, 10 or so good friends who love ships like I do. We get our gloves and our crowbars and our boots and we unload these giant containers. You know, on my lawn, my front lawn, it looks like the Jode family moved in in the middle of the <laughs> depression because the stuff is all beat up and dirty and ugly. And my neighbors thought I was absolutely insane. Uh, but my friends and I would just cart it all and bring it into my backyard. And I would spend the next couple of months with each container uh, cleaning the stuff off, photographing it, measuring it, figuring out what I'm going to keep, what I'm going to sell, and then hiring another truck to move the debris of all the crates uh, to the junkyard, and then hiring another truck to move the stuff into my storage units where I would keep everything. And designers would come up from LA and walk through my storage units and point out what chairs they wanted and so on and so forth. And I would put things on my website and sell it that way. And and that's how I made a business out of it. That leads me to my next question. You said designers in LA, being that you're in California, have movie companies ever reached out to you to see if they could use any items on set? And if so, like what movies could we see your stuff in? I wish I could tell you. There's a guy that I can sign stuff to Mm -hmm. um, that had a big warehouse and he used to go on back in the days of Arsenio Hall, uh-huh. Arsenio would hire him and say, hey, what's cool? And he would bring on some cool antiquity or some great mid-century thing. And this guy was really connected. And he ended up selling some of my stuff to Johnny Depp and other nice. movie stars. And I never saw who he sold the things to. I just know that some of my stuff went on to live in big mansions and you know pl- uh, private islands and things like that. Some these beautiful things rescued from the ships. And I always told him, I said, Whatever you do with this stuff, give them all of the background that I'm giving you so that they actually know what it is. They're not just looking at this cool painting. I want them to know that this is by Luzzati, and he was this important Italian artist, and it came from the Stella Solaris. Even if they don't use it, just please give it to them so that at least you can pass on the provenance. So he would use some of the stuff because he had a big gallery. I know on one of the um, uh, storage wars, one of my Luzzati panels is in the background because he was one of the guys that they would bring stuff to to say, hey, Dennis, what is this worth? And so he would sit there in a shop, and I, I remember seeing my Luzzati panel in the background on a, in a few of those episodes. And he did take the Empress of Canada glass wall mm-hmm. um, from the Mardi Gras, and he told me that he loaned it to some people for a TV commercial. But I don't know what commercial. He would never tell me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he paid me for the loan, which was nice. And uh, that's all. That's uh, that's all I know of. But that's... I do watch shows like Mad Men and uh, what's the other show about the stand-up comedian from the 50s. I always look in the background just in case, 
maybe one of my things is there and, you know, it, that somebody bought and, you know, used for one of the studios. But no, I've never actually been approached by one of the studios, which is frustrating because I know I had great stuff and, you know, I'd love to loan it out. Well, and you also put your, um, I, I hate saying stuff, you also put the <laughs> keepsakes on midshipcentury.com, which is your website. So if someone were to go to midshipcentury.com, they could see like all of these items and purchase something if they wanted to? Yes, I will say one caveat. Uh, my guy who designed the website has gone on to other things. He's very busy. So there are some things that I need to update, but the gist of what I have is there. And if, you know, if people go on the site, they can, you know, send me, they, they can click and send me an email and ask if, the, if something is available and I'll answer them right away and let them know, yes, this is available. Then unfortunately, no, that's been sold. Um, and that's pretty much how I'm doing business. I have other things that aren't on the site, but if, tell, if people tell me what they're looking for, or what they're interested in, I can send them photographs and, and let them know, you know, some of the other things that I haven't been able to add to the site. I would love to do a full update, but at least the site itself is there. And there's another nice thing for ship fans about Midship Century. There's a whole section where I've documented most of the ships that have been broken up in the past 15 years, if they want to know what happened to the Mardi Gras, the Carnival, the Stella Solaris, um, Eugenio C., all these different ships, they're there with photographs and, and the history of the ship and then even usually a picture of them actually in the, in the scrapping process. So, if, you know, which is kind of ghoulish in a way, but a lot of people want to see that stuff. It's part of the history as well. You know, you see pictures of ships being built and, uh, you know, pictures of them being scrapped. It's, I think it's important that these pictures get taken because it's, it's all part of the history. Yeah. But some people actually get really upset when they see these images. And, you know, I've heard from them, too. <laughs> like, why do you publish this? But, but it's all part of the process, as sad as it is. It's, it's, it, people should know that pe ships just don't sail off into the sunset. They, they get torn apart on a beach in India or China or Bangladesh or, you know, wherever the ship ends up. It's, it's all part of the process. Of a ship. So my question to you, and you probably won't give me a straight answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway, has Carnival reached out to you about any relics from the old Mardi Gras for the new Mardi Gras? I will say this. I keep my fingers crossed, Doug. I can't tell you anything yet, but if something does happen, uh, I will be delighted to let you know. I have sold much of the stuff from the Mardi Gras and Carnival, however, so whatever I do have left, if they were to be interested, I would be more than thrilled, even if they didn't want to buy it. If they just wanted to take some of the stuff and put it on the ships as a loan, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a little corner somewhere where somebody who is curious about the first Mardi Gras, first Carnival, keeping my fingers crossed again that that's going to be the name of the next ship, you know, what those ships were like, I'd be thrilled to provide a little bit of that history. So let's keep our fingers crossed and let's hope for the best. Cause I think, I think Carnival's got some new, um, some new management that probably appreciates this stuff more uh, because they get the sense of history and their 50th is coming up. And so you never know, you never know. I think you're holding out on us. I think you know something you're not telling us. 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> let it ride. It's okay. I know you have to be coy about it. It's cool. You're okay. doing a good job at doing that. Yeah. And if someone at Carnival hasn't contacted you yet, I'm sure someone at home office listens to this show because I always get emails correcting me if I say something wrong. So uh, okay. If not, they will uh, reach out. I'm sure. Question for you though: Cruise ships are made all over the world. They're, Greece has shipyards. Italy, Spain, Finland. Here in the U.S. In your opinion, what countries have the best design, whether it be hull or decor? Like, what really sticks out to you? What country? Well, I think the Italians. I have a penchant for Italian ocean liners because the architects of Italian ships were so concerned with beauty and symmetry that they would argue in the shipyard, you know, like Eugenio C., for example. Take a look at that ship. Google her, Eugenio C. from Costa Lines. Mm -hmm. Look at her forward superstructure. It is a 180-degree circle. Magnificent. But it was a pain because that circle cost them a lot of revenue. If they had a straight-across forward superstructure, they could have added more cabins, they wouldn't have had to change the shape of the cabins inside. But no, 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 no. Niccolo Costanzi, who is the architect of that ship, was insistent. I'm not going to create an object just for the sake of, 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 of money that's going to be ugly. You cannot compromise beauty of a ship for something like that. So Costanzi was famous because the bows of his ships have this swan's neck shape. It's an extra curve in the bow that flows it's gorgeous. So you would look at the ship sailing into a harbor. It, you didn't have to be a ship lover to say, oh, my God, that is an object of beauty. Like anybody, if you walk by a building and you see magnificent architecture, you're impressed by it next to some cheap building that that's not impressive. And the Italians were always so concerned with making their ships have a personality and style. So I admire from the 30s through the 1960s, the Italian built ships the most because I just think they were the most stylish and, and gorgeous to look at. And they weren't always the most functional. They didn't always have the best engines. And, mm -hmm. you know, the cabins might have been funky and the plumbing might not have always worked right, but they were something to look at. So just for sheer sake of beauty, the Italians had that, I think, all the way up through at least the mid 1960s. But if I do want to tip my hat to, one particular shipyard now, it would be Meyer Werft uh, in Papenburg. Mm -hmm. I think the quality of the shipbuilding and the pride of the yard owners in making objects that are functional. And if you look, you know, if you're in the dining room of a ship and you're looking at the ceiling, it's seamless. You know, the, when the, when, in the corners where, where one material meets another, it's just so well made, and I think Meyer Werft is 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 the the prime example of of shipbuilding today. I don't think the ships that they produce are necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing because I'm not crazy about modern aesthetics as far as ships are concerned. Disney ships have a certain degree of beauty to them, and I think the celebrity ships are very. I hate to use the word edgy because <laughs> celebrity edge. I'm not trying to say that because of the name of that one particular ship, but they do have an edgy sort of futuristic look to them. And so I admire that. And I think Viking, their ships, their ocean going ships are beautiful ships as well. Really, really thoughtfully designed uh, and well-conceived. And so I, I can, I can sort of, you know, find some beauty in, in modern ships, but if you put those ships up to, 
the Andrea Doria or the Augustus or even like the American ships, the SS United States, there's no comparison. You know, the way ships were built in the past, they were just objects of beauty and power and symmetry and, and they were inspiring. And I just don't see that when I look at these, you know, ships with too many decks and too many balconies now and, and water slides and all of that on the top decks and tiny little funnels and short bows and it's, you know, and squared off sterns. Um, not to say I don't like new ships because I love sailing in them and I enjoy all of the technology that comes with them. And I love being at sea, but um, they just don't inspire me when I look at them from the outside like the old ships did. So in your opinion, what did the older ships have that the newer ships do not, like the old Mardi Gras to the new Carnival Panorama? Well, actually, and I will say this, the Panorama is not a bad looking ship on the outside. There's some nice, there's some nice balance to that ship um, mm-hmm. that some of the other carnival ships don't have that class the way they terrace the stern back it's actually quite pleasing there when the panorama sailed off i thought wow she's she's actually really a handsome ship for a modern ship but what the older ships had was sheer which was that curvature when you look at it from the side where the bow and stern are higher than the center of the ship that's it's a wonderful line of uh, it's it's almost like a sculpted look uh, that's missing in modern ships. And understandably, that shear makes it very difficult to install cabins. Cabins are pre prefab, you know, they're built on mm-hmm. on shore and then they're basically lined up one after another and stocked in a ship. If you have shear on a ship, you can't do that. You'd have to make each individual cabin slightly differently you know, by a couple inches to give that shape, to allow this cabin to fit into that particular shape of the ship. So I understand why they don't do that anymore. Ships didn't used to be so top-heavy looking. I mean, I know they're they're supposed to be safe, but when I look at these, you know, ships that are towering 14, 15 decks above the sea, I just, it boggles my mind how that thing can stay upright and not, you know, tilt to one side or the other. Uh, But of course, you know, they've got all the technology down below and they've got stabilizers and all of the things they need to make sure that that ship's metacentric height isn't too much. Otherwise, they wouldn't build them like they do now. But they're just so top heavy. And, you know, before they used to have sort of a sleekness. And even the ships of the 70s, like the, the princess ships and the royal viking ships, um, three of the Royal Viking ships, they, they still exist now, the original Vikings, because they were so well designed. They had long bows and, and low, sleek profiles and rounded sterns, and they were just pleasing to look at. We just don't have that anymore. And gradually, you know, they squared off the sterns, and that was the first thing to go. And then they started shortening the bows, and then they started squaring off the superstructures, and then they wouldn't terrace the after decks anymore. There used to be a pool on the aft decks, and mm-hmm. they would layer the deck up gradually up towards the funnel. Now it's just boom, straight down, a, a, a vertical cut like somebody sliced the ship in half with a knife. So all of these things, you know, as the architects are told by these boardrooms, hey, you know, where can we fit more cabins? Um, but they have to figure out, okay, well, then we can't have that nice rounded superstructure anymore. We got to add an extra deck and and that's what they do because that's how the ships make money. And in turn, by making money, the ships can offer us a lot more things now than you used to have, you know, big shows and, and multiple restaurants and 
all sorts of, you know, spa amenities and things that the older ships just didn't have space for. We've been talking with maritime historian and journalist, and I guess we could probably add supplier to the Hollywood stars, Peter Canego. <laughs> I guess I want to say if you're listening, and if you're a ship geek like me, you're going to love this website, midshipcentury.com. It just really digs deep into the cruise shipping history. Also, your documentary that you released uh, in like 2012, I believe, The Sands of Alang, that's documenting yeah. when a ship runs up on the beach to it being deconstructed, basically, correct? It shows pretty much everything. And that documents the main star of that is the Eugenio C the Italian ship. And so mm -hmm. I tell the story of the ship from being launched. I go, I went to the shipyard in Monfalcone and I interviewed this wonderful historian, Maurizio Aliseo, and he talks about the designers um, of the ship and how the ship was conceived and her run to South America. And so I tell her history and then I take you on board the ship when she's in India being broken up and I'm going there, pointing out the artworks, and you can see footage where I take footage of the ship when she was alive uh, and in service and morph it into footage of her sitting on the beach while she's being scrapped. So you can see the beauty that once was and sort of the sadness of, of what, what became of her. Um, and then I follow her through Kaushal, my guy there, went back and took pictures of the ship during the breaking process after I had left. So you can see how the ship sort of disappeared gradually on that beach. And then we follow the container, filling the container full of the artworks and fittings and bringing it to my home in Moore Park and then unloading the container and then seeing where some of those artworks went. So that's called the Sands of Alang. And that was the one done in 2012, 2013. And that is still available and that's on the website. So anybody who has sort of a curiosity about the the process of how a ship is broken up, that will show you from the cradle to the grave, basically. Yeah, full circle. Yep. And a great documentary, I might add. We've been talking with maritime historian and journalist Peter Canego. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. And I, I really hope I didn't cut too much of your morning with uh, our conversation. Doug, are you kidding? I could talk about ships forever, <laughs> especially with you. You ask me great questions. You love the ships just as much as I do. And I love what you do. I'm a big fan of yours. You've got this archive, which will be a very, very precious thing. And, you know, 500 years from now, I hope people go back and have your archive available so that they can know what happened in the cruise industry all these years uh, that you've been doing this. You just do a great job. So thank you for having me. And I, I, I hope you don't have to do too much editing to get me down to 20 minutes. I'm just going to air the whole interview, actually. It was really good. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. I, I'd be thrilled. Um, so thank you so much, Doug. It's always a pleasure and, and an honor to be on your show. Thanks again, Peter. Take care. It's funny, a side note here. Peter was one of the three people when I first started this back in 2009 that really took me in and believed in me. It was Peter Nancy Shredder from the Family Travel Network and Teresa Masick from TravelPulse.com. Everyone else kind of laughed and like were saying, who's this cruise podcast and all this stuff and or this cruise website, cruise radio, blah, blah, blah. But that was 11 years ago. Forgive, but never forget, right? I hope you're taking care of yourself and stay safe. We'll talk to you on Thursday. Take care. During these difficult times for the travel industry, Cruise Radio stands behind the men and women who work so hard to bring our vacation dreams to life. From the captains and crew to travel agents, tour operators, 
vendors, and port employees, we offer a sincere thank you on behalf of the thousands of guests whose lives you impact each and every day. 